How are you folks? My name's Dave Jordan and welcome to the Active Minds podcast, which aims to open up honest conversations on our mental health, celebrate stories of people's resilience and growth through dark times, as well as to explore and share the things that help us with healing, positive change and happiness. My fourth guest on the podcast is a good friend of mine who I did my coaching training with in London a couple of years ago. Shalini Sakira is a Cambridge graduate, published author, and with her business partner, Joe Larby, makes up Inclusive Professions, an executive coaching firm that specializes in the promotion of talented women and BAME people into senior leadership roles. In her previous career, she was a senior lawyer and she now works as a consultant with some of the largest law firms in London. Since our training, we've continued to coach each other and have regular catch-ups. And although I've always enjoyed my chats with Shalini, I have to admit to feeling a little bit nervous in the build-up to this one, basically for fear of saying the wrong thing or causing offence in some way. And even as I, I say these words, it, uh, it feels ridiculous in some ways. But I think it also highlights perfectly one of the barriers that we face in making progress on prejudice and racism in the UK and globally. And that is in actually having these difficult conversations at all levels and acknowledging the elephant in the room. I really enjoyed this one and I hope you do too. Shalini, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dave. I'm really delighted to be doing this with you. Uh, it's been quite a while since we've since we've caught up, and to say things have changed is a, an understatement. Yes. <laughs> um, how have you been coping with the pandemic? Everything that it's thrown thrown at you. I've had stages of coping. The first bit of lockdown. Uh, I found really difficult to deal with and I felt that I was adding more and more into my life and it was becoming unmanageable Um, and I actually had a fantastic coaching session with my coach and came to what afterwards seemed like a really straightforward realisation that what was needed for me was to pare things down and take out the non-essential things and really focus hard on the things that I had to do. But what helped me was to think of it in small blocks. So to think, okay, I've had to give up these things, but I'm going to reevaluate in two weeks and see if I can bring any of those back in. Um, And also to focus on where I could direct positive energy and make uh, make a positive change. Um, So in the middle section of lockdown, that really helped me and I think now I'm I'm sort of frustrated because I'm having to spend lots of time and energy on making decisions about how how much I and my family can can come out of lockdown and really honestly I'd prefer to be spending that energy somewhere else so it's a new phase of being in limbo and adapting to the limbo so it's had it's had an ebb and flow, I think, my response to the pandemic. Yeah, and I think that's been the case for everyone. I mean, I, I, I had a bit of a, a reverse on that. I, I started off well and felt I can do this. 
I, I kept as much routine as I could and, and really focused on being positive. But then as it's gone on, I've really struggled with the lack of routine, the lack of social interaction and and financially as well. My my business is, you know, it's, everything's been put on hold. So it's it's really testing. Yes, I, I think it it has been a time of uh, surviving for many, many people. Uh, and that is testing. Yeah. It is all about survival. It's it's like, like I saw something lovely on Maslow's basic or Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and at the bottom of that is safety, yeah, uh, and survival. And I think that's well, certainly where I'm at. Um, and it's difficult to 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 manage the uncertainty of it all. That's what I've really struggled with. Someone who suffers from anxiety anyway around certainty and uncertainty it's it's been a challenging time to say the least yes and i've i've really noticed exactly that same thing happening with my children who unlike adults don't have any other experience to test this against and they are really struggling um with that sense of uncertainty and chaos and not being able to understand that we will come out of this at some point yeah, and that's what what everyone's uh, holding on to, isn't it? It's just when and how yeah. how that looks. Yes, and um, and I think we're at, at a point of limbo where everyone's having to uh, sort of make almost dream up their own future of when and how that looks, and that's also quite stressful. Yeah, and of course, in the middle of all of this, this. As I was walking the dog this morning and thinking about our conversation, I saw in a window a little kid's drawing that said, um, racism is a pandemic too. And of course, in the middle of all of this, we've had the George Floyd tragedy that's exposed sort of that, that uh, you know, this thing of race, uh, racism has never been addressed properly or gone away. and. What what do you think's changing here? Do you know that's such an interesting question, Dave? Um, because I know lots of people who, like me, have been talking about this issue for some years without really getting any traction, and suddenly people were interested in listening, and there was a tragic death. And it was, it was all over the internet, and it was appalling. Um, but what about all the other tragic deaths that have happened, and all the other awful things that have happened? Why did no one take any notice when those things happened? I don't really know what it was about the death of George Floyd in particular that caused people to sit up and take notice, and I'm still grappling with that. Well, could it possibly be or partly due to the fact that the because of the the lockdown, the pandemic, that everyone was sitting at home and been forced to digest this. People weren't running around and busy in life. Could that have been sort of a, a much smaller impact on the media had it not been for the fact that everyone was at home? Um and the fact that it was so so brutally captured on that that footage on the phone, but everyone had a time to to really digest it and realise that 
God, this nothing has really changed in in the last forty years. Yes, I think I think the I think people's lives during during COVID must have been part of that uh, that process. Um, and maybe you're right. Maybe it was just that people had more time and space to digest this awful thing that, ha- that had happened and been captured and and seemed absolutely, uh, you know, unjustifiable in every way, um, and and really could only be put down to uh, to to race. So maybe that was maybe it was just the timing of of world events that meant that this was the point when people started to come together and take notice. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it, to pin down? And I know through our coaching conversations, just to uh, give some context here, both of us trained, did our coaching qualifications up in London at the same time. But we've had coaching conversations quite regularly since then. And I know yourself and Joe, your business partner, have set up this executive coaching business that's trying to address the underrepresentation of the black and Asian and ethnic minority communities in the UK business world, but that you'd really, you'd said to me on several occasions that you felt like you'd sort of hit a brick wall and you seem to get more despondent as, as uh, the harder you knocked, you, you were just met with silence and you felt like you weren't getting very far with it. And yet this one incident seems to have just completely brought all of that to the, to the forefront throughout the world. Yeah, it, it's, it's been fascinating as somebody who has campaigned to, to um, you know, to improve inclusivity of leadership across all sectors and, and particularly in terms of um, black and minority ethnic talented men and women it's been fascinating to have tried to do that and to have met with very little um positive response in terms of people actually wanting to do some work with us so we did we did have positive noises made we have had positive noises made by a number of people but in the end um, I don't know whether they really grappled with this issue of how do we make our leadership more inclusive. Um, and it did make me feel despondent because I I guess I realised that the issue is, is a systemic issue. The issue is not with one or, or two people who I speak to who don't want to do anything. It's a wider systemic problem in the UK. and and elsewhere, um, which is really hard to tackle. And race has become a political hot potato in this country. And people don't have the vocabulary or the ease with which to talk about it. So they'd rather not talk about it. And they would rather move on to something that was easier to talk about, like gender. Mm. And this has meant that that is no longer the case. It really feels like this can't be swept under the carpet anymore, whether that be at a societal level, a a corporate level, or a political level, that this now has to be 
addressed. But but I guess the concern, and I've heard this voice from from several people I've spoken to, is that you, the black and ethnic minority communities have been here before, in the '60s, in the '80s during the riots around uh, you know in Manchester and in Brixton and, and Tottenham, and the concern I guess is that it's until there's concrete evidence that it's something is changing, it's a bit of a concern that it's it's more of the same. I I definitely have that concern. I, I suppose I have two thoughts. One is that um it, it is definitely true that doors that were firmly shut are now a tiny bit open and that um there is a, a platform for change to happen that's definitely true that's that's the positive aspect um but on the other side we have been here before and until we see some possibly quite radical action being taken to make things different um we're not going to know whether there's been real change because tinkering around at the edges uh will will not change the systemic issues of uh a lack of inclusivity and and that applies to many many communities who have previously been excluded from leadership it's just that the black and minority ethnic community is the one that i can i really know um so i feel i have very mixed feelings about this moment uh, but what i have noticed about myself personally is that i have suddenly felt much more able to speak up and to tell my story or to talk about things really bluntly that concern race and my experience in a way that I probably wouldn't have felt comfortable doing before because I feel as if people are more ready to listen. So that's been very positive and I hope that I can I can continue to do that. Yeah, I, I mean I've I've always said to you how amazing I thought the business that, that Joe and yourself were setting up. And I think it's now more than ever that that business needs people like yourselves to to go and champion that and, and have those conversations. Um do you feel excited by it and energized with with a bit of skepticism? I I do. And I also feel that I I, I feel I would love to work with organizations who who really feel energized about doing something and who who want to make some real genuine change to to champion inclusive leadership and that I don't need to work with organizations who are just um, making a few little changes at the margins that I will hopefully be connected with organizations that really want to do something and really want to be in the forefront of making a change and those are the organizations where i know i'll feel really excited to be doing something Mm -hmm. so yeah i I broke it down into a a couple of parts that maybe we could drill down into and and get your opinion on it Uh, and let me know you know you bring up whatever you, you want to it but i was excited to get your um, opinions on this because I, as I said before we we started recording, I think you're quite uniquely positioned 
to comment on on many levels on this, particularly in in British society, because as an Asian woman of uh, uh, Asian heritage and born and brought up in the UK, having got a a degree from Cambridge and worked as a a lawyer's high corporate uh, level in London, and also having set up this executive coaching business with with Joe to address underrepresentation, I think, you know, you you've lived it, you've experienced it at sort of the, the elite academic level, the elite business level, um, and lived in a society. Um, you were you were brought up in London, weren't you? Yes, I was. Y- yeah, so that's why I feel. You know, it, it, it's so great to have your, your views on this. And I thought maybe we, we could start with um, a societal level. What do you think needs to, to change at, at, at that level to, to turn things around? I think it's, it, well, one thing which I think is going to be really important is that we, we look at our whole attitude to people who are not white and there's been a massive clamor recently to um, look at what we're teaching children in, in our history curriculum and and mm. rehabilitating um you know some bits of, of our history that haven't been taught so the the whole history of colonization and post-colonization is generally totally glossed over um, and actually, it's a really important aspect of our history because it has led directly into some of the racial tension and the racial views in this country. So I think that's that's really important. We need to think about, you know, why we have these historic structures in place that have excluded um, people who are not white mm. and, and and a lack of knowledge about what went on in terms of colonization and what attitudes fueled colonization, which was essentially that white people were better than non-white people, you know, if you mm. boil it down. A lack of really grappling with that um, isn't helping at all because those attitudes still exist without even really considering where did those attitudes actually come from and, and are, they, are they reasonable? Are they logical? Of course they're not. Yeah, because... These views are are taught and learned by kids through education, through from from their their parents at home and what they tell them and how they behave and react, but also what you learn at school, and it is absolutely glossed over. Um, and and also just to raise the point, as a as an Irish man, I've long been frustrated with the lack of. Uh, well, w- among friends, they have absolutely no idea of any Irish history and the fact that the English ruled over Ireland for over 800 years and how they reacted to the Irish famine and basically starved, refused to send food over. There was loads of food um, and and the destruction and death that that caused. And I, I know they did that in India as well. They starved um there was food there to be pro- provided. I can't remember the the incident, um, but I agree that the all of these historical facts about colonisation and the price that was paid 
that the people who who were enslaved and taken over, um, it, it was a money making decision. It was all about commerce and and um, and it's not taught enough in schools. It's, and it's got to be acknowledged and taught and learned from to move forward. I think I think it has, and I think you see it in some of our political discourse and this idea that. Britain is a, a great nation and punches above its weight on the international stage. You know, that actually was born during the colonial era when Britain did punch above its weight on the international stage because of the colonies and because of all of the mm. um, the wealth it was amassing from subjugating other people. Uh, you know, had Britain not had any colonies, it would have been completely different. And, and we can't change the course of history, but we can think about where did some of these really obnoxious attitudes come from? Um, mm. And and how do we change them? How do we become more realistic? Um, because there's a there's a narrative, especially on the right, uh, which which you know is still pretty racist, actually, um, mm. and. And I think that that needs to change because that narrative is often predominant in in the minds of the people who are ruling the country, and and at, you know in any organisation, whether that be a, a society or a or a company or or a, a club, the the leadership sets the tone for everybody else. So if our leaders are thinking those things, then it's carte blanche for everyone else to think those things. So. Yeah, I, I guess I, I feel that a, a, a radical rethink of, of what people are taught and, and and not just in history, but if you look at children's books, for example, um, there are very few characters in children's books who aren't white. Mm. And what is that message giving to all the non-white kids who are learning to read with these books? It, it's sort mm. of erasing them completely from the picture. Yeah, all the all the Disney characters are are white. All the heroes tend to be um, white. In fact, there's a beautiful um, clip of Muhammad um, Muhammad Ali goes through on Parkinson that details this, and he references, you know, how how color is is talked about in terms of you know the black sheep. Um, it's it's really fantastic. I'll 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 forward it on to you. But so you think. Uh, looking at at that how it's conveyed in books and in films absolutely i think um popular culture has has a big part to play and and often you know where you see um non-white people is in music but where do you see them in terms of you know um the the mainstream um film industry the mainstream book industry um, in sports, they tend to be in certain sports and they're not in others. And, and all this stuff, we need to have a look at this and we, think, we need to think about why, why, why do we not see, um, you know, maybe, let's say, 15, 20% representation of non-white people across every sport in the UK, for example. Mm. What's going on? Why are people being, um, being excluded or why are they not being included? Yeah, and and we've spoken before. Uh, I've given you the example of of football, and it's often uh, cited as an example that the number of black players there are, 
yet they're completely underrepresented at a managerial level uh, or, or in the FA. Um, and that, that goes across the, the board, you know, not just through sport, but in, at the corporate level as well. Yeah, absolutely. So there are lots of different layers um, of, of the issue. Uh, and it's, it's, that's why I think of it as a systemic issue because it it seems it it pervades so many things that we all just take for granted in our society um and how we change the system and where we can have agency to make little changes that might add up to big changes is really where people like me have been working mm. um because changing the big system itself if you're an individual isn't possible so at a corporate level then, what needs to happen there? And who, who's going to spearhead this? I really think that it, it can only happen if at the very top level, um, the leadership believes that the leadership has to change and that the leadership of the organisation has to be truly inclusive and to set the tone for the rest of the organisation. And if the leaders don't really embrace inclusion, then I believe nothing substantive is going to happen. And it's a threat for those leaders because often they know that if the leadership team was truly inclusive, some of them wouldn't be there. So it takes some very brave leaders to think, actually, we have to open up our, lead, our very top leadership team and we have to find those talented people that perhaps we've overlooked. When you say they, they wouldn't be, be there if they opened up to that, do you mean that they wouldn't be the best person for the job or that they, that yeah, they were? I, yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. Um, so I've worked in a few organisations. I'm thinking of one in particular that had an entirely white male leadership team. And the... Uh, the CEO and chairman um, was on record as saying that he had never met a woman who was suitable to be on the board. And I guess that's a huge issue at the corporate level that they're represented at the top level by white privilege. Is that is that too harsh? But certainly white middle-aged men who probably don't have much who are scared by the whole race discussion or, or tackling it? Yeah, well, they're scared of gender and they're even more scared of race. And, mm. uh, and as one very astute um, organisation development specialist uh, said to me, you know, how many of these people actually have any black or non-white friends in their close social circle that they would eat dinner with mm -hmm. and it's probably very few and that brings me back to the societal question i asked earlier that how do you how do you how does one address that integration of cultures i know it's an issue in the states i can't really comment on it because i was brought up in ireland and in dublin there, there just was no black or ethnic communities in those days. So, but, but I, I know it's an issue in 
in England and, and in London that is there real integration, do you think? I mean, I, I know the schools are mixed, but what, what's your opinion on that? Um, I, I can only really speak for myself and uh, my family because I think there are probably lots and lots of, um, you know, local differences and it, it, I, I don't think I can sort of speak for the whole of London, but but my sense is that there's a little bit of integration um, in London. People probably do have some friends or people in their circle who aren't of their own ethnicity, um, but that doesn't mean that it's fully integrated. Um, and my my children go to a school um, at one end of Harringay. Harringay is a very very mixed borough. Mm. And yet in their school, there are hardly any non-white children. It's a huge school with hardly any non-white children and no non-white teaching staff. All the senior leadership team is white. Yet at the other end of the borough, um, you would probably find that the reverse was true, that nearly all of the children were non-white and nearly all of the staff were non-white. So in the same borough, you've got these two very different things happening. Um, and and people, you know, it, it it's a mystery to me how how that can be taking place where the two schools are probably only a few miles apart. Mm. Yeah, I mean, down in Sussex, down in Brighton, you know, I t- I taught, I was a school teacher and taught up in London, um, all over London. I, I did quite a bit of supply teaching in Tower Hamlets and uh, all over the place. And I remember coming when I moved down south to to Brighton, just how white it was. There's no, the, 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 there's not many black or Asian communities down here. Um, so do you think that boils down to educating people again and and breaking down stereotypes and and prejudice and and just having those conversations? I think it does, and I think London is a bubble, and the big cities of the UK are a bubble. If you go to the more rural areas, they're very white and mm. people may never really come across anyone who isn't white or rarely in their life. You know, if you, if you live in rural Devon, for example. Yeah. So there is a level at which talking and sharing experience is important, but, if, but there's this whole other group of people in the country who, who don't day-to-day see anybody who's not white and Mm. that how do you change the minds of those people well i think i think there's no getting away from the geographical barriers but to me this sort of brings up the media side of things that there's an awful lot that goes to create these stereotypes and prejudice in the media you know the, the the ones that tend to Give an awful lot of coverage to the idea that black black men are are either drug dealers or violent knife wielding thugs, you know the Daily Mail like stuff, or that Asian men, particularly up north, are stereotyped as even more recently as sexual predators or paedophiles, or as terrorists, and like I said, geographically, that you know there's not an awful lot we can do to. To, to integrate, I guess, but I think those those prejudice 
that are that are made in the media and reinforced continually, surely they have to be questioned and and addressed. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think there are some very pernicious stereotypes in the media about certain um, races and ethnic groups, uh, and they they absolutely do fuel what people think when when they see people from those groups. Um, and and also there's a kind of subconscious wanting to keep away and slight dislike and and not really treating as equal those groups that have been stereotyped in that way. Mm. But but I I also had a really interesting thought yesterday, a, a positive thought on this that like it wasn't long ago I had uncles. Uh, who tra- who lived in London in the sixties? Who were treated awfully? They were they were, you know, had a completely different experience to me. And being Irish actually only became trendy in the mid eighties, nineties. Luckily, just when I came over, because the troubles up to that up north, um, you know, we were really we were really treated badly and treated as as, as thick ignorant mix and paddies that's how it was that's how my my uncles speak of it and really prejudiced against and in the last podcast i i i gave the example of the only time i felt prejudice was in 1987 when i came over to uh scotland to do interview for for um universities and it was a weekend that two british soldiers were were dragged out of their cars and killed by a Catholic funeral, um, people attending that. And I was on the train going up to Edinburgh and these Protestant guys heard my accent, realised I was an Irish Catholic and, and were going to kick the shit out of me. And, and luckily I managed to get into another carriage and it was diffused by some, some, some adults. But I remember being terrified and thinking, my God, it's, it's the one and only time I've, I've ever experienced that. But it gave me a real idea of how it must be to feel that prejudice day in, day out. Um, but I guess my point is that from a generation, things were turned around. And it suddenly went from Irish being ignorant paddies who were only good for tarmac and roads and working on building sites to being treated much more positively. And, you know, my, my experience, as I said, was, was completely different. So it is possible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is possible. And I, I, I hope that, um, you know, generations who are younger than me uh, will, will have a different, completely different attitude um, towards, towards race and ethnicity and all kinds of other things. Um, I think that the generation that I grew up in has has fairly sort of hardened attitudes, but but we'll see. You know, maybe this this whole kind of rising of anger over George Floyd and the corresponding recognition of needing to listen mm. and needing to make changes. You know, maybe that is going to be a catalyst for for something really big to happen. And when you say they, your generation has hardened views, is that towards how tr- how white people treat them, how the how the whole 
of, of Great Britain treats them. Yes, and I think my generation is now in power. Um, you know, people in the boardroom are my age. And there has been very, very little progress in seeing black and minority ethnic faces in boardrooms or at the top level of, of organizations mm-hmm. um, in the country. And so I think it's probably a going to be an uphill struggle getting my generation to change its mind. But perhaps younger generations might might see the light more quickly. Mm-hmm. And so that that I guess there has to be that brings us on to the political system. There has to be big changes there in order to address the corporate level, the education, the societal level stuff. And I don't know about you, but um, certainly in the states, having such a, an odious character in charge. Um, and also, I don't think Boris Johnson is far behind in terms, you know, he, uh, as a white, Etonian, privileged <laughs> clown. It doesn't instill confidence, really, does it? No, and I think um, one thing that has been on the agenda for a long time, which Boris Johnson has, has or his government has not embraced but may now embrace let's see is the ethnicity pay gap um because in the same way that forcing companies to report on the gender pay gap has revealed lots of um nasty truths about how um companies operate and how bias works i think the ethnicity pay gap will show that plus 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 um, I wasn't even aware of that. There is an ethnic an ethnicity pay gap. Well, there's been a demand for companies to have to publish their ethnicity pay gap information for a long time, but the government has never made it uh, the law that they have to do it. Um, and it's it's probably been lobbied very hard by a number of organisations who know that their data will be awful, um, and that it will really show, uh, uncontrovertibly that um, there is systemic bias against uh, black and minority Asian employees. And so would you agree that, or would you think that there has to be changes in the law to address all of this? Um, I, I don't know. I, I think um, nobody will publish their, their data unless they're made to publish. So to get ethnicity pay gap reporting i think the government will need to make that something that companies have to do Um, i I don't just mean that i mean to address this whole situation yeah i i know and i was coming on to that um it's a question of changing people's attitudes as much as it is trying to i mean there we do have legislation we have legislation that protects people against um uh, direct and indirect discrimination. So we already have the laws in place, but they're not working to produce an inclusive climate for people. Mm. Um, and that's so. I think it's not a question of the law so much as a sort of radical rethink of how everything works in this country. Mm. 
which will involve some discomfort for lots of people who haven't had to grapple with that before and who haven't really had to think you know about how just by being born into a certain ethnic group for example they have got lucky Mm. not because they're any better than someone in another ethnic group or more skilled or more clever or anything but they just got lucky was nothing to do with them it was just to do with their race yeah and i think a lot that's very unpalatable for a lot of people well it's shocking isn't it even hearing you say it it's like yeah well there's no arguing with that and it's very very true and very prevalent and unless people are really willing to not only grapple with that but the ramifications of that which may well be that they don't really deserve the thing they have got. Um, And there are plenty of other people who may have deserved it more. So they're not amazing to have got there. They were just lucky. You know, Mm. those kind of things are unpalatable for people to have to deal with. And that speaks directly to the political elite as well, doesn't it? Totally, yeah. Yeah. And, And also, I guess... Over the next two or three years, it's going to be, their priorities are going to be based on tackling probably the the worst global recession or depression since the 1930s, um, dealing with all the shit from Brexit. And now this race issue. Um, and the race and I, issue and, yeah. and the recession issue are going to collide. Because, um, we'll probably see that the people who are worst hit by recession are poor black and minority ethnic people. Mm. Mm. Um, and we've already seen during COVID that there's been a disproportionate number of deaths in the black and minority ethnic community. So we're seeing how, you know, world events often, um, fall hardest on people who are not white. And I'm pretty yeah. sure that the recession, the worldwide recession that's coming will will also do that. Yeah. And it's also, yeah, begs the question that, you know, that why, why are there problems within the black and ethnic minority groups um, in terms of knife crime, in terms of all of these negative statistics come come up but but the the root cause of a lot of them are that they are not given the same opportunities they're not given the same funding um and it's really acknowledging that and ad- and addressing that isn't it i think so and and not just on a on a small level where somebody feels really moved to do something and so they do something in their community I mean those things are really great but there's got to be a more systemic approach to these things where not just that small community's helped but but there's a there's a different approach where more people can be helped and and more people can be um, offered opportunities which they're not being offered I don't know exactly what the answer is but I feel that Relying on philanthropy isn't enough. There's got to be a, a a taking on of this by government and society, and thinking these are 
these issues of inequality in our society need to be tackled for everybody to to have more happiness. And do you think it's as bad over here as it is in the States? Um, Over the last week, I've been, uh, well, like the whole the whole of the UK, I've been binging on Netflix and I've watched 13. Do you, have you seen that documentary? No, I haven't. It's just on, on the judicial system and the punitive system in the States um, on how since the 1980s, it's gone from, I think it was 300,000 inmates to now it's two and a half million. And the, the percentage of, of black and ethnic minorities in the prison population is just hugely disproportionate. Um, but it, it just showed how biased and how everything is stacked against those people. Um, really, yeah, really shocking viewing. And I also watched Ken Burns, um, started watching his stuff on the Civil War. Again, real eye-opening stuff to where it, it all started. But do you think it's as bad in the UK as it is in America? I don't really feel that qualified to answer um, mm-hmm. that particular question. But what I think is, is um, there, there is a, there's a sort of structural difference in, in the US and the UK in that um, the vast majority of people who fall under the BAME banner in in the US are black and in the UK we have lots of different ethnicities in that banner and and it, it from the data that we have got you can see that different ethnic groups fare very differently here um and even sort of subgroups within ethnic groups fare very differently so i think there's a very um a very nuanced picture of of how different ethnic groups fare in the UK and I think in, in the US, it may be much more monolithic and it, it may be that, um, you know, black people generally um, are, really suffer in many, many, many ways there. And how, how does, can, can you expand on, on the differences in the UK in terms of the Asian community, the black community? Um, what, what's your understanding of well, the, the differences? I think... Um, again, you know, I don't have the data at my fingertips, but um, but for example, the the, the life of a, um, a a well-off Asian who uh, you know maybe went to university and grad school in India and then came to the UK um, in a in a graduate job may be very different from um, a a Bengali. Um, growing up in Tower Hamlets, you know, it, mm. it, it may, there may, there's, there's a very different, there are lots and lots of different stratifications um, of how people fare, depending on how they started out, where they were living, what ethnic community they were in, um, levels of poverty in that community. Um, and so I think the picture here is, is quite difficult. And also, um, all black and minority ethnic people are lumped under one umbrella. You know, we're, we're just in a black and minority ethnic group. Mm. And when companies start network groups, they might, may start a BAME network group, which is essentially for everyone who isn't white. But mm. actually in the UK, that encompasses a huge number of different ethnicities and races. 
who may not like each other, may not feel much camaraderie, yeah. but are sort of forced into being together by the system. And, and do you think the Asian community feels part of this new movement? Because it's, very, it's a very black movement, isn't it, From in the States, the whole George Floyd movement? Well, I think there, there are a couple of issues. There. There's whether you feel part of the movement, um, and some people may and some people may not, and whether, whether what's going on has triggered all of the, uh, the, the feelings about racism that you have inside. And I imagine that for lots and lots of people who aren't black, but who are in a in a an, a non-white race, that has happened. That 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 it has triggered a lot of feelings about racism and prejudice and inequality, um, which they've borne inside them for such a long time. Whether or not they feel they can be part of Black Lives Matter as as a particular group. Yeah. And how did you find it? Uh, your, your own story. What, what's your own story with with being brought up and educated and working in London? Um, I think I. So I, I, as you said at the beginning, um, my heritage is is Indian, and my parents came to the UK from India and Kenya, respectively, and met and stayed here. So I was the first generation uh, to be born in the UK and like many immigrant families my parents had very high expectations of me which which mainly revolved around fitting in so I learned at a very young age to fit in put my head down work really hard you know try to aim higher be responsible um, and I don't think I allowed myself to really connect with what I really wanted or my actual true voice. It was about trying to fit in. And a lot of the time that was about drawing as little attention to myself as possible. Because I think I felt that I was invisible and very visible at the same time, but not in a positive way. So I went to a school where I was among a handful of brown people everybody else was white. So I stuck out like a sore thumb. And my reaction to that, you could only have one of two reactions. One is to go large and to really become a flamboyant character. And the other is to just try and disappear. And that was my coping mechanism. And I think that's continued to be my coping mechanism, even though I didn't know that I was doing that. Um, and, and And my experience is common across so many um, non-white people of my generation that's what we did that's how we got on we expected our work to speak for itself we didn't really understand how to navigate the politics of organizations we didn't really have anybody cheering for us or rooting for us or giving us informal mentoring advice we basically mm. had to just try and navigate the system by ourselves and find a way through it so in some ways I have been privileged. I've had a fantastic education. I went to Cambridge. I became a corporate lawyer. But in other ways, um, my experience is of being held back and of prejudice and of people feeling that I was different and didn't quite fit in. Um, No matter how hard I tried to fit in, I didn't quite fit in. Um, and that's because 
I was allowed to be there, but people tolerated me being there. They didn't embrace me being there, really want me being there and, and enjoy everything that I was bringing to that organization. I was tolerated. Mm. And what would you have liked to, what, what would you have changed? Well, it would have been very hard during those years to change it because it, what, what, how could I have really um, changed everyone's mind so that they, they really embraced people who were a different colour being in their organisation and, and embraced what they had to offer, the difference that they were bringing? Mm-hmm. Um, difference wasn't really celebrated and so I just had to learn to leave those differences at the door and try and be the same as everyone else and I remember thinking very early on in my career that I was only bringing about 50% 40 or 50% of myself to work and I didn't really realize why and it's only now looking back on it that I think it was because a lot of what makes me me wasn't really wanted and what what bits do you think weren't wanted my different experience of being indian um you know the the different way that maybe i thought um the fact that yeah just that just just me as an individual, you know, the fact that so much of what makes up me is actually the family I have and the parents I have and the 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 ways that I was brought up. That's all really mm-hmm. important in making me me. But really, nobody wanted to know about that or or have that as part of what was going on. It was all about fitting into the predominant system, which which was of of middle class white England. I mean, I chose, I did I have to say, I chose a career that was, you know, very backward in terms of inclusion and diversity, very backward um, and still is to some degree. So I probably had a worse time than if I had gone into something else that was a bit more forward thinking. And, and quite misogynistic as well. Yes. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it was a double double prejudice i guess in that in that industry definitely uh, there was a huge amount of well there were many many issues about women um when i started working women in the city um by by sort of unwritten rule were not allowed to wear trousers trouser suits you had to wear skirts or dresses and you couldn't wear trousers and this was the level of of um sort of control that the city had on women it was trying to control what we wore to make us look a certain way at work um so there were many many issues about being female and making it added to which if you were not white there were a whole load of other issues which made it even more complex and has that changed in the last well when when did you leave five years ago four years ago um, I think in the law, it has changed a little bit, but things in the law move at glacial pace. Um, there's a lot more to be done. And I think it, there is still um, institutionalised racism, unfortunately. And again, how, how, 
how do you think it's best to address that and tackle that? I think it will need people tackling it from from a number of different directions and it will need lots of people to to kind of work together in their different ways to tackle it. So the thing that that Joe and I are doing is is offering coaching to uh to talented black and minority ethnic men and women to give them back the confidence which they have um often lost actually about their own amazing skills and abilities to reach for leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing that we're doing, but we've also, for example, teamed up with some headhunters because that's another area where black and minority ethnic people just often fall through the net. You know, headhunters typically don't have any links into black and minority ethnic communities. So they produce a slate of white candidates. And why aren't they tapping into those amazing, talented individuals? who exist in this country, but never get called up by a headhunter. Mm. So that's another thing that we're doing. So that's another, you know, we're trying to collaborate with some headhunters. And we, we've really seen in talking to people in other areas that collaboration is going to be really important um, across all different platforms so that eventually there's a tipping point and we get to a place where black and minority ethnic people can really succeed but it it we're not there yet hmm. well, what's the name of your company again inclusive professions joe inclusive. and i yeah joe and i are both coaches coaching under inclusive professions okay great great um yeah a, sh- a short last question what what advice would you give the 16 year old you um, I, I would have said, um, try, try to tap into what you're really interested in and, and follow those things and find some, find some really good mentors. Because uh, my mum and dad had very good qualities, but they weren't great mentors. And I think if I had found some other adults who had good perspective and um, were able to be a sounding board for me, um, I wouldn't have been doing it all on my own. So it would have been to tap into what I really cared about and to find some people to help me build a community. And in a way, that feels like what you're doing now is building communities and finding your voice and mentoring mentoring people like the young you. Yes, yeah, so eventually I am taking my own advice, but it has taken quite a long time. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it works, isn't it? <laughs> you got there in the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if there's anything you'd like to raise or if I've missed anything, but... No, it's been a wonderful conversation, Dave. I've really enjoyed it. And we've covered so many different areas um, and thoughts. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I knew, I knew you'd be great to, to, to ask questions on this. Um, thanks so much for coming on. I, I did really enjoy it. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> Take care. You too. Bye. Bye.